pay when the procedure works. You really believe that that's not only possible, but inevitable? Yep, absolutely. It's too important. It's to the people that are consuming. People are also very, yeah, it's, it's, the, the optionality right now is just unacceptable for most Are you Netflix or are you Blockbuster Video or are you HBO or are you some other analogy that should be applied to the fertility field as we talk about the massive change that is coming from venture capital to the field of reproductive health? My guests today are Dr. David Sable, who needs very little introduction to you all. This is his third time on the show, former practicing REI also teaches at Columbia University for classes on entrepreneurship, also manages a fund for life sciences. Today, we bring on his colleague, Ms. Abigail Cyrus, who is a venture capitalist and investment associate for another life sciences innovation fund. She had been at IBM for a number of years before that. Today, we talk about the four principles for democratizing IVF. We get so engrossed into these principles and the changes that might be happening in the marketplace and who might be executing upon them that we're going to have a part two where we go through some of the mapping where of the areas of biggest potential disruption for the fertility field. I felt that we needed this conversation to set up the next one. And I don't tire of having Dr. Sable back on the show and you don't seem to either. So until you do, then these multi part series makes sense. Today, enjoy the four principles for democratizing IVF with Dr. David Sable and Abigail Cyrus. Ms. Cyrus, Abigail, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Dr. Sable, David, welcome back to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you for having us. I'm, I'm always happy to have Dr. Sable back on the show. Abigail, this is the first time that you and I have met, and I want to talk about an article that David wrote recently based on work that the two of you have done together. But before we get into the article, just give me a little background. How did the two of you link up? Sure, I'd be happy to. So Griffin, David and I actually had the pleasure of meeting on a project at while I was at my previous company, IBM. I was a blockchain strategy consultant and David was actually one of my clients. So we, in that instance, were trying to create a blockchain enabled system called IVF Open to really bring standards to the way that biospecimens are stored and tracked and traced uh, along with chain of custody for in vitro. And I admit, you know, Griffin, I'm actually the product of IVF. So my twin brother and I were born via IVF. Um, and it's, it's truly a miracle that, you know, I, I really wouldn't be here without. And so it's always had a, a place in my heart and been special to me. But when I got to meet with David and several others across the industry now a few years ago and do this project together, my eyes were really opened to the industry in a new way. And I'm a process-minded person. And when I started to understand the inefficiencies across the space, it really started to inspire me and, and, and grow my passion for all of the opportunity that is here and things that we can can kind of bring to light through innovation, which I know we'll talk about a little bit later. But What came of IVF Open? Absolutely. Well, I'll let David answer that question. Thanks, Griffin. Thanks for having us, having me back and uh, having Abigail on. Uh, Going back to the decision to bring Abigail on, I try to endeavor to be the dumbest person in the room wherever I am. It doesn't and, work uh, when you and I are hanging out, David. No, no, no. no. 
<laughs> well, certainly when she's around, it's uh, that happens. But uh, now IVF Open was, uh, we likened it to building drainage ditches for, to let the IVF industry scale. Try to, you know, I think you and I might have talked about it briefly, trying to have one place that assigned identifiers for frozen eggs and embryos so that nobody ever mistook someone's eggs and embryos for somebody else's. And the nice thing is it kind of got, it's been taken up by a lot of the private industry incumbents and made part of their kind of overall strategy. You know, trying to in group enforce these kind of rules by a nonprofit is a difficult thing to do. So uh, having kind of the industry say, yeah, this is a really good thing to avoid uh, these problems. Let's go ahead and try to see if we can build into our handling of specimens a uniformity of labeling. And that'll evolve in a nice way, kind of organically within the industry. You know, what we did is we tried to put all the incumbents together into a single, not a room, and single, single Zoom screen. And, uh, you know, really it's, what was great was that everybody got it and everybody understood and left the effort, which uh, hats off actually to Risa Levine, who I know you know, who's a super patient uh, advocate activist in this field. We're kind of getting the whole thing off the ground. And uh, the other great thing that came out of it is that I got to know Abigail because IBM was a big partner of ours in that. And then when I was looking for someone to join me, actually, we asked Abigail, said, do you know anybody? And she said, well, how about me? I said, well, if I knew you were available, I wouldn't be asking. So, uh, so I brought her on as soon as I could, and that's been terrific. She's been with us for almost a year now. Let's talk about the article that brings us here today, which is about the four principles for democratizing IVF, the four guiding principles for democratizing IVF. And this was an article that you published just before ASRM, David, and there are four principles. I have a feeling that we're going to go into the third one disproportionately today. At least that's where my disproportionate interest lies. Uh, but the four principles for democratizing IVF are abandon the tra travel agent model for IVF patient care, use the gravitational pull for and by incumbents, making today's highest pregnancy rates the floor of outcomes for the future, and fourth, using greater certainty, uniformly higher outcomes and improved data collection analysis to actually qu qualify data leading to better risk management. So we'll talk about the four of those principles. Let's start with the first one. What do you mean by abandoning the travel agent model of IVF patient care? Well, yeah, 30 years ago, if you wanted to take a grand tour of Europe, you'd call up a travel agent and they would book your flights for you, book your hotel, book your tours, make reservation restaurants for you, add up the bill, put a big margin on top of it, send you one bill and you'd write one check. And it's a, you know, it was a way of getting things done. And it's a nice model if you, A, can afford it, B, have access to a great travel agent, and uh, C, they actually give you what it is that you want. For the IVF world, that's kind of what we have now. You go to an IVF clinic, you say, I'm having difficulty conceiving, and the incumbents in the clinic make all the decisions for you and they charge you one amount. So your input really comes down to just choosing a clinic, and they make all the decisions for you from there. What 
the future of IVF as we foresee it and the way things seem to be evolving, as we disassemble the cycle into different places, into geographies closer to where the patients live, using our inputs more efficiently, not putting everything into a $2,500 a square foot laboratory, is that the patient herself or the family themselves will be able to choose maybe being monitored one place, have their egg retrieval somewhere else, take their eggs, store them somewhere else, and, you know, initiate contact with the laboratory once the eggs are frozen and maybe bring a reproductive endocrinologist into the process later on, giving the patient the opportunity to choose to stay closer to home, do some price comparison shopping. Uh, really, the way we purchase just about everything nowadays, there's no reason that IVF cannot evolve into that model, which will result in greater access, more price comparison, you know, more price choices, and an ability to kind of you know, oversee one's own care the way you can do so many other choices now in the market. Maybe we'll bring this up a little bit when we get to the the third point where we talk about dollars until baby and time until baby and life disruption to baby. But is there a risk if you are abandoning the travel agent model, the all-in-one model by choosing your clinic of having death by a thousand cuts? Like I don't think the airlines have added a lot of value, the Spirit Airlines and the Frontier Airlines, by having people choose if they want to bring a a carry-on if they want to pay more for that or if they want to pay more for not having a, a middle seat. Uh, I, maybe there's something to be said for the Southwest and the Jet Blues and the Alaskas that have brought down costs without making people have to to nickel and dime on, on each individual micro choice. Uh, but what about that? Well, I think that if you're looking at people, you know, if you're looking at the people who have access to air travel now without a very, very low-cost budget airline where you have to pay for your seat choice and pay for each bag you bring on, and there's no food and there's no flight attendants, then it may not be very additive to them. But you know, we have to ask ourselves, and you know, Abigail told, and I start every conversation the same way, what problem are we solving? And if we're solving for access for the next million, five million people per year that need IVF, that have no access to it now, then they may be more than willing to, at a price point in a geographic location that works for them, suffer and endure some of those little cuts of you know, inconvenience. Whereas if the choice is they have no access to IVF at all, then we're you know you're kind of opening that consumer choice up where you know remember people don't want to buy an IVF cycle, they want to have a baby. And if I, you know, look at some of the inconvenience and the things that people endure now to go through an IVF cycle, including traveling thousands of miles and taking off that 40 hours of work per, per cycle in order to go back and forth to the clinic to be monitored and things of that sort, then, you know, I don't want to make consumers and patients' decisions for them. So I think that as you expand the market, you know, our big goal is to go from 3 million cycles a year to 30 million cycles a year. We've got to give a lot of different patient experiences, uh, put them into the market 
and let the patients slash consumers themselves decide. You brought up the point of I don't want to make the patient's decisions for them, referring to the travel agent model, but I can hear a number of REIs thinking I make patients' decisions for them. That's what my job is. I, what decisions are patients qualified to make and maybe perhaps they're not qualified to make? Like, are we talking about picking their own PGT provider? Are we talking about picking where they store their gametes and their embryos? Are we picking where uh, their pharmacy? To, to what, are, what are we talking about? All of the above. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Again, when I met Abigail, who had not, you know, had um, other than professional reasons to learn about IVF, she was incredibly knowledgeable about the process, the science, the medicine, everything there was. And I remember thinking, boy, what was your healthcare background in college? See, this was like a someone who was like a pre-med that decided to go into data and, and, and analytics. Turns out, yeah, I was an accounting major. Very good accounting major, I imagine. My patients knew so much about what they were undergoing that why not entrust them with the ability to comparison shop for the best IVF process that works for them rather than have us decide for them? You look at the range of pregnancy rates from one cycle, from one program to the next, and through you know, the United States and through the world. You know, we're doing about 2.6 million cycles per year worldwide, getting about half a million babies. It tells us that our efficiency is somewhere between 20-25% per cycle worldwide. We know we have clinics here in the U.S. that are doing 65% per single embryo transferred if that embryo is genetically normal. So there's an enormous range so to think that the de facto proper way to navigate your IVF cycle is to put all the decision-making in someone else, that may turn out to be the case, but why, why do we assume that's the only case? And again, this is within the context of trying to expand the size of the marketplace to people who really, really need IVF, in order to have a baby, or to have a healthy baby, or to get pregnant at all. Uh, by a factor of five or 10 X. So it's, you know, the putting different choices out there, you know, it's, it's, you know, we, we go back to our old, uh, metaphor of we have an IVF industry that's the hotel industry with just the four seasons and the Ritz Carlton, but we got a heck of a lot more people that need a place to sleep. And essentially their frame of reference may be give me a comfortable bed and a clean bathroom at a price I can afford. And they'll get the same eight hours of good sleep that you'll get in the Ritz-Carlton. If we give people the same probability of having a baby and we're transparent enough in the marketplace the same way all other consumer marketplaces are going, then why not entrust this to the patients? Again, because a lot of these people would have choice, would have no choice at all. They'd be out of the market. And uh, so I think that the REIs have done a fabulous job of making these choices up to now. It's great, and they should always, there should always be a place for them. And high-touch, high-hand-holding uh, kind of decision-making-for-you service is fabulous, the same way there are still great travel agents out there. But it shouldn't be the only choice. 
Well, not to defer to anecdotes, but hopefully to give some context, Abigail, during your journey, were there segments of the journey where you wish that you had decision-making authority that you could have opted for the option that you wanted? Or or did you choose any options that are now informing how you view this from a business perspective? Yeah. And just to be clear, I do not have an IVF baby. I was born via IVF. So I can't speak directly to the process itself from that intimate of a perspective. Although, you know, who knows, maybe I will, I will one day and I'll come back and, you know, we can have another discussion. Um, but what I can tell you is just from observing the industry today, as David said, not only about the, the hotel chain model of making sure that there are the Holiday Inn Expresses as well as the Ritz-Carlton's, really for us as well, it's, it's about geographic access and making sure that you know, a teacher in Des Moines has just as much of a chance as having the family that um, she so desperately wants as anyone who's right near our office in New York City. Um, and it's only by increasing that optionality and bringing services to patients through, you know, at-home monitoring and other innovations that we're seeing that we'll be able to bring those models to bear, which is part of what I'm so excited about coming from IBM, where we were doing consulting projects with innovative technologies like blockchain and AI and quantum computing, um, and starting to see some of those models take shape in this industry as well um, is, is just, it's just the tip of the iceberg. You talk about that there should be a gravitational pull for incumbents. That's the second principle of democratizing IVF. But is there often an inherent conflict from incumbents? Dr. Harrison sent me a book by Clayton Christensen, who was the the author of Theory of Disruptive Innovation, or at least one of the theories behind disruptive innovation, where he charts out the, the course of Blockbuster and other incumbents that were simply dis, they're disincentivized relative to their current model, their expenses, their profits, their current obligations against someone uh, that's coming into the marketplace that doesn't have nearly as many obligations. They don't need to make as much revenue. They don't have current infrastructure as expenses. So you talk about uh, using a gravitational pull for incumbents, or at least ideally there should be one, but isn't there not one very often, almost by nature? Yeah, Griffin, it's a great question. And when we mapped out the uh, strategy for re-engineering IVF. The second principle really came down to the best, you know, in the best circumstances, this will be steered, managed, and navigated by the incumbents, the people that know it best. You know, the experienced REIs, the best embryologists. But recognizing that there is a natural, rational, and perfectly reasonable kind of uh, you know, inertia towards changing the way you do things. Like, frankly, when I was running a busy IVF program, I was making a good living. I was employing a lot of people and I was busy as all hell. So if you came to me and say, okay, it's your job to, you know, open up the world so that the next million, five million, 10 million people have access to it, I'd say, listen, it's a nice idea. But where am I supposed to fit that into my schedule? So going from anecdote to generalization, you know, Eduardo Harden is as uh, visionary as any young REI out there. And you recognize that you can't really rely on incumbents to do all the heavy lifting for you. 
So the way we look at it is we can do it with them, we can do it without them. We can do it with the existing REI infrastructure. And we try to make it in their best interests by looking at their operational capacity, looking at the limitations of, their, of the inputs, where their bottlenecks are in their process, and trying to come up with solutions that make them able to expand what they do in a less costly manner. And they could decide to you know, triage that input any way they want. They may decide to uh, expand their geographic reach. You know, if we cut the IVF cycle into three parts, retrieval and freezing being one part, storage being a second, and then thaw, fertilization, development, and transfer a third, they may decide to have retrieval stations all over the place. And they may take their existing satellite offices and use them there. They may do alliances with large OBGYN groups in rural areas to do them there. They could do them uh, uh, with alliances with other programs, leveraging the real estate that they have. They can uh, use decision-making, decision support software to put 10 times the number of people through stimulations. And so that the REI on, on duty only needs to look at 4 or 5% of the results each day because the computer will make the same decisions that they are. You know, all different ways that we can facilitate their operations. So in that way, we like to think that the incumbents are going to be served by innovation. But if they choose to keep things the way they are, which is perfectly okay, some, some of these programs are doing fabulous patient throughput, terrific care, great results, then we can use these technologies to reach patients that have otherwise no choices by bringing other people into the marketplace as suppliers uh, in a way that maintains the quality of care because we're going to be using a different engineering, different data analysis, and different process optimization, try to arrive at the well the well-run IVF kitchens that exist now. So we can do them with these people without. A lot of what we do in IVF is repetitive things done over and over again. A lot of embryology will lend itself to automation, robotics, things of that sort. So that way we can build the kind of par bigger parallel industry that can take that next 10 million people in that aren't being served. And the incumbents can choose to participate in whatever they want to. We want to make it easy for them to do so without giving them absolute control over who gets to be treated worldwide. Because, again, what are we solving for? We're solving for access. And the size of the marketplace not being served is a lot bigger than the size of the market currently being served. So the incumbent people, we, we embrace them. We want them. They do a fabulous job. But we don't want to be in a position, and if we're acting as advocates for the unserved now, we don't want to give them control over who gets to be treated and who doesn't. Incumbents can be served by the innovation, or it can be done without them. It sounds like you had a – I wasn't at your talk at SREI, but it sounds like you were a little bit more stern with that message at SREI. What are the consequences – what did you say there first? Second, what are the consequences if they, if they choose not to be a part of the innovation? Well, it's a, it's a competitive marketplace. 
you know, the you know, right now we've got a small number of suppliers with a enormous reserve army of new patients they're trying to get in, and more and more patients getting coverage as well. You know, coverage from employers, state mandates, things of that sort. I guess the uh yeah, the, the downside to not participating is you're locking yourself into a model that we may or may not be able to replace. You go into, you know, what what are the what does a patient look at when they're trying to make a decision to how to navigate their journey? And Abigail and I came up with you know three you know key performance indicators. Yeah, it's, it's using a, an MBA term, but it seems I just saw the patient silently make these decisions for the 20 years I saw patients. Dollars per baby, time until they have a baby, and the life disruption that they have to endure to have a baby. Every patient is solving for those things. And those are our North Stars in trying to, you know, kind of navigate or, or map out how we re-engineer the IVF world. So if a clinic existing now is operating at capacity and they have full control over the pricing, it's exactly what you want as a supplier in any industry. You want to operate, you want to be as busy as you want to be, and you want to be able to charge what you want to charge. And this is not a value judgment. Every economic actor is kind of solving for that. But they're operating within an environment where there's a cost structure, there's an access structure, and if people have no choices, then they're kind of a, a, you know, they're at your whim. They, you know, they are at, they have to serve under the parameters that you set. Now the markets can change. And if we put out a, you know, whether it's technology, whether it's using AI, whether it's finding alternative practitioners, whether it's opening up centers closer to them, where suddenly those dollars per baby, time to baby and life disruption are much more skewed in the patient's favor, then to hell with it. I'm no longer going to the ball, the ball to buy a bookstore, to buy a book in a big bookstore. I'm going to do it online. I'm going to download a Kindle file. I'm going to have all these other ways of fulfilling my need for a text file called a book. I'm going to have all these other ways of fulfilling my need to build a family. And the incumbents, if they don't uh, either change their marketing strategy, change the way that they fulfill that, or, you know, maybe they, maybe they're still doing such a great job that people that want that higher touch, higher cost, higher travel type IVF experience will continue to come to them, which is great. You know, that's, it's a, it really, it just puts that competition into the marketplace that, uh, you know, it's all, all doctors always say, no, we want the free, we, we want free market medicine. Well, this is free market medicine, but it's free market in the way that the patients have access and the patients themselves have choice, not where the providers can rely on monopoly power to keep their keep their practices the way that they are now. Abigail, are there some segments of incumbents that you see more vulnerable as others? Going back to the blockbuster example, that's the example that's always used. It's used in every business course. It's used in mainstream. Everyone knows that example. A huge corporation in blockbuster within a few years being totally supplanted by now a titanic corporation of Netflix. But I think the story that 
almost no one talks about. I don't, I don't ever hear anybody talking about is no, that was HBO. So HBO lived to tell the tale. And as far as I know, they're still doing well. I haven't looked at, I haven't looked at their performance or their stock prices or anything, but as far as I know, HBO is still doing just fine. But that Netflix space in the market was HBO's to take. And somebody came out of nowhere, Netflix, and did it. But HBO had the same considerations. They didn't suffer the same consequences as Blockbuster, but they lost the land grab. So are you seeing some incumbents that might be more vulnerable than others? And and in different ways than just, you know, being, being supplanted entirely. Yeah. And it's, it's funny you bring up the Netflix and um, Blockbuster example, because that's one of the first cases I ever, you know, read in, in, in college. Um, but I think about it in form of two ways, in terms of incumbents first, who are not going to be willing to innovate and bring in new practices or new processes or see things in a different way, which I think of as blockbuster. Um, they're the ones who are sitting there. Streaming was coming to a head. We were seeing you know, it becoming less and less expensive with the compute power becoming more optimized, and they decided not to change their business. And because of that, they were you know, usurped by Netflix. But then we have also the incumbents who do a specific part of the process or have their specific niche, just like HBO does in creating their own content and being extremely good at that and creating a name for themselves in that way, who will continue to have their corner of the market based on what they do well. And so I think that for the incumbents who are choosing not to innovate, they potentially might be at the most risk um, because you know I, th I think it's good to see businesses growing and changing and, and adopting new modalities in ways that might be better than they ever were before. But then there will also be the HBO models who are very good at doing specific things. Maybe they have a specific capacity where they have a number of genetic counselors on staff, or they can focus on specific, um, you know, more complicated journeys than others can, um, like an HBO model, and they will be able to survive as well. But generally, you know, I think we keep focusing, you know, we've, we've got Thanksgiving coming up this week on kind of this pie and speaking about these incumbents who have really, in the scheme of things, just a small sliver of the pumpkin or, you know, pecan pie. But the, the pie is quite large. And so I think that there's vast opportunity for incumbents and new players to come into the industry together and to create innovation that can improve the patient experience and make it more accessible for all. Let's talk about the third principle then of what needs to happen in your view in order for that to still be successful, that, which is that today's highest pregnancy rates should be the floor of outcomes for the future, that it's not about delivering a lower quality product at a lower cost. It's keeping the main metrics of dollars until baby, time until baby, and life disruption to baby at the forefront at the forefront excuse me but aren't those three principles very often in conflict with one another that if you reduce the the time to baby you might have to increase the cost to baby or, or vice versa uh one of the things that we learned when we started examining the ivf industry as an industry about eight years ago is that it's really characterized by outstanding science and really mediocre engineering. It's, you know, the, you, you look at, at you know, in my career, the pregnancy rates when I came out were middle single digits by putting back three and four embryos at a time. And we didn't touch the egg. And so the idea of, you know, 
sticking a needle into the egg to do insemination with the sperm was just beyond us, much less doing things like genetic analysis. So the progress has been just remarkable. And the fact we have anybody that can have a baby, that can create a baby more than half the time with one embryo routinely on average is, you know, that, that seemed like a million years in the future back when I started being exposed to this in the 1980s. But that being said, that means that someone has cracked the code to get it that high. And what is engineering? Engineering is just getting everybody on board to use best practices to do, to do things as well as everybody else. And if our goal is, which we think it should be, that anybody that needs IVF to have a baby has access to IVF to, to a baby, then we've got to proliferate these best practices. Now, there are some people who are more talented than other people for manual procedures. And if we look elsewhere in cell biology, and we look elsewhere in manufacturing and engineering, we see that these things can be standardized to using robotics, using machine learning, to a way that everybody can operate at the highest level. We will migrate to that. It's unavoidable. Every industry that's tech-based does that. And the sheer size, the sheer enormity of the demand for IVF services is going to migrate the best clinics to higher and higher pregnancy rates. Yeah, they're much higher here in the U.S., uh, than they are in the world average. They're very high in areas of Western Europe and parts of Asia. And that will, it's just a matter of time, get up there. We will collapse the pregnancy rates always in an upward fashion. Now, that said, that means as we engineer and as we do more and more process optimization, those rates will be even higher. And that leads us to probably the biggest innovation which is really going to disrupt this industry, and I also think is inevitable, unavoidable, and an unequivocal good, is that, and it shows you how bad I am at writing articles, because I completely buried the lead when I wrote that, because the real big point that I was trying to make is that we're going to get to a point where the expectation for outcome is very standard, no matter where you go, and is high enough that we can risk manage in a way using very simple principles of finance, and we turn things around so that nobody ever pays for an IVF cycle where they don't have a baby. That is the ultimate democratization of the process. That's where we really change the way we deliver IVF. And it's very, very, it's, it's very doable. It's just a question of how much time. And there, indeed, we do see a conflict turns, you know, a, a real choice as to how you want to run your practice, how you want to deliver this. And, uh, you know, in the interim, you know, you know, we will see a splintering of which clinics do, some, do certain things well, which ones adopt a more convenience model, which ones adopt a highest possible pregnancy uh, outcome with a super high price point model. And this is all fine. This is the market working the way the market should. You know, if you uh, if you notice, we're not talking about forcing the insurance industry to cover things that the basic insurance model doesn't say that they should cover. We're not talking about convincing governments to uh, you know, provide price support or provide supplementation for patients. 
this is really trying to go through a, a free market model. These things may be accelerated by governments getting involved, maybe because they're concerned about population shrinkage and things of that sort. But ultimately, the you know the individual choices that the existing clinics make are not going to stop the movement towards a much bigger marketplace, a marketplace with lots of choice. And that choice will ultimately include completely shielding the patients from having to mortgage their houses two or three times in order to do that next cycle where people draining their life savings and never ending up with a baby. And, you know, what's the big motive, the big driving factor there is just this enormous, enormous market of people that really want to spend money, want to, you know, dedicate their time and effort towards building a family. And all of us, you know, Griffin, certainly you included, who interact with IVF patients, you can't underestimate the size of that motivation. This is not consumer discretionary. This is not choosing to buy a book at a bookstore or on Amazon or, you know, downloading a video text file from HBO or Hulu or, you know, going to your closet and having, uh, you know, VHS tapes. This is one of the prime motivators of life. So there's this enormous, enormous marketplace out there that's going to find a home by people creating means of, uh, of fulfilling these needs for the families. Does that mean that we should expect one of the factors to, to improve before the others? For example, should we expect dollars until baby to reduce before we see time until baby to be re- reduced or both of those to happen before we see life disruption to baby are we is it more realistic to expect one of those dropping and then that setting the standard where the value add becomes in the other two segments or are we looking at technologies that could possibly reduce the concern of all three at once yeah i think it's a venn diagram where the three circles overlap a lot you know it's like dollars to baby if the patient has to travel yeah, 25 miles to the clinic every two days to be monitored or needs to travel to another state to have the cycle done, needs to stay in that state. Then that's a dollars per baby and time to baby and definitely a life disruption to baby. The, you know, when we develop new medications that can be given orally instead of by shots. Well, those shots are a real life disruption to baby. They're also very, very expensive. Uh, and there's only two companies that make them. So that's a dollars per baby company as well. So it's, I think that as you, as you move one, it tends to drag the other two along. And it's not so much a conscious choice because implicit in these are specific things you're doing. You know, you're moving your retrievals from the big, unbelievably expensive lab to a procedure room because the engineering system is closed up so that the egg never sees the ambient air or light before it's frozen. Or you move the retrieval to your satellite clinics tens or hundreds of, or maybe even thousands of miles away so that you can better leverage the enormous lab that you've built and you can kind of de facto increase the capacity of your laboratory without building out, you know, without spending another 2,500 for another square foot of space. You may be moving your storage somewhere else. Uh, all of these things are going to 
improve your operational capacity, improve your ability to provide the service you're giving now in ways that can turn into translating into offering your patient a better experience that's more affordable or more risk-managed or closer to where they live. So I think it's just kind of a virtuous ecosystem where you start attacking these things one at a time and they show up in all of these parameters, both for the clinic themselves and for the patients, as well as being a motivation for kind of ambitious entrepreneurs outside the field that say, hey, you've got all these people newly insured all these people with new state mandates, all these people that may be in other countries now need the service. Look at Japan is doing everything they can to make IVF more accessible. Let's build it and they will come because right now they have nowhere else to go. It's kind of it's kind of a like you know, virtuous ecosystem, I guess is a good way to put it. It seems like it should be a virtuous ecosystem, but there are clearly challenges to integration, if that's the case. And Abigail, I want to get your experience if you see if you've seen these challenges with integration in other areas, because it seems like there should be a Venn diagram that someone that can come in and improve the the time until baby would also help be helping reduce the cost until baby and and limiting the life disruption to baby and there's all kinds of companies at asrm that are trying to sell into clinics and i see them struggling selling into clinics for a number of different reasons that can be in an in a whole podcast episode and I've, I've probably done one or two but they are struggling even though i see the value that they bring they uh they they reduce nursing workflow they reduce um the the legality and all the workflow uh not all of the workflow much of the workflow involved in third party cycles uh they reduce uh what techs and stenographers and and other support staff have to do uh i i think of these companies and i see the value that they bring and they're have a, having a hard time selling into clinics partly because of it's it's seen as an added expense but also because it is really hard to integrate given the variability of clinic workflow so it seems like it should be a virtuous ecosystem but there's some roadblocks and i'm wondering what you've seen in other sectors that might be comparable yeah and for me it goes back to my background in emerging technology and and um how tech gets adopted, really. I mean, when we think about it, I started doing blockchain back in 2016, which feels like a long time in, in, in blockchain years or in any emerging tech where, yes, of course, in the beginning, when you're changing the status quo and introducing something new, there is that friction and that hesitancy, especially when the, the incumbent clinics have a great formula. They know what they're doing, they know how to do it well, and they know how to bring in and optimize value for it. Um, so adding anything to that or, or changing anything um, can be can be met with a little bit of, um, of that friction that I mentioned before. But as we see with kind of all of the traditional tech curves going into, you know, any business school case, yes, there's that friction in the beginning and you kind of go up into the curve where over time as the technology begins to be more widely adopted, it becomes status quo and it becomes kind of bundled along and becomes standard of care in this case. And so I think that we're just in kind of the beginning of that cycle of seeing some of these new technologies starting to take shape. Um, and as the value becomes more proven and as it becomes, you know, oh, 
these are some of the best educated patients, I think, throughout all of healthcare. And they know exactly, you know, what's going on and where their money's going. And if they hear that this clinic over here is doing something that might have better outcomes than a clinic down the street, I don't think they'll hesitate to, to make decisions based off of that and to also encourage that kind of innovation. So I think it's going to happen organically and naturally at first and then quickly and, and kind of more all at once, once things start to become status quo. But as for integration, integration is always difficult. But what I think is important is is patterns do start to emerge. And so once some of these early stage startups, you know, I, I had the pleasure of walking through the ASRM booths just like you did and getting to speak with a lot of them. Once they start becoming adopted, you know, a couple clinics at the time and start being integrated into their workflow, they'll be that much better positioned to integrate into the next one. Um, and you know, as, as well as we do in this industry, there is um, some pretty significant consolidation. So just winning over a couple of those larger chains could mean that a lot of the innovation is adopted at a faster rate. Well, I see that, but I also see a lot of steps back and I see it being, I see it also taking several years. So I think of, of one company that's been around for many years that probably has half of the market share and does very well. And, you know, they, and, and so there's probably, okay, we get a few of the early adopters on board that will try anything. And then that provides the, the case studies for us to increase the market share. And then it, and then they've got some rapid growth for a little bit, but then either it just it, it just stalls because whoever isn't adopting still isn't adopting, and and they don't see the improvements as dramatic enough to to make the investment. Maybe they're just incremental, or the consolidation does happen, Abigail, and then they they go back. It regresses because the the new partners coming in are cutting costs and say, you know what? We just don't see this as dramatic enough. So is, is incremental one year after another possible? If so, it doesn't seem revolutionary. It seems like it, it's taking a, a really long time for many of these companies. Or does it have to be so dramatic and so obvious to that uh, this is now the standard? And if that's the case, uh, what's necessary to to do that? Be, given the variability of clinic workflows, if 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 something is really going to be that dramatic of an improvement, that means it has to affect a lot of the areas of the clinic and lab, presumably. And in order to do that, there's a lot of things that that need to be integrated. So. David, you said on the show before that the entrepreneur's job is to solve the chicken and the egg. But what about this challenge of of improving incrementally when uh, if if the adoption, the catalyst for adoption is seeing dramatic improvement? Yeah, well, like like a lot of things, success will only be in retrospect. And we are going to look back at one point and find that it's going to be an awful lot of overnight successes after 15 years of work. Uh, the kind of cul-de-sac that everybody drives into intellectually when they envision, you know, this is kind of a sweeping statement, but I often see it when I discuss innovation with an idea, is it's always done within the context of the existing clinic structure as it is now. And it's always, okay, how do we go into these existing clinics, convince them to do something different? And I think that we may find that the innovation really reaches critical mass and you see those revolutionary steps when we start building that industry alongside the one that's there now. 
Now, this may be one of the large consolidated chains. And, you know, these are terrific doctors, terrific administrators. They may decide, you know, we've really reached a limit of, you know, kind of a limit of growth of what we're doing under brand name of what we've got. So we've got the four seasons there. Let's build a, another system for a different marketplace. Let's take a critical mass of these innovations, four, five, six, seven of them, put them together in a way that really adds up to a substantial change in cost of, develop, of delivering the service, yet with the same outcome probability. You know, it's like this, the, the old thought that lower cost or more convenient has to be at a trade-off time, lower probability of the baby. That's unacceptable. You've got to have at least as good a chance of having a child at the end of the whole process. But, uh, you know, there is an enormous industry to address that doesn't exist right now. And trying to kind of force feed incremental innovation into the existing infrastructure, the existing clinics as they are or as they are consolidated, may be too difficult a way to get these innovations into play. However, like I've been, I've been talking to founders now going on seven years and watching them as they evolve their business plans. And it doesn't seem like it's been all that long that we've seen some really great changes in the way people look at these things. Like you, you look, you, know, you and I have talked about AI and if you're talking engineering in the 21st century, you're talking AI, which what is AI? It's math, but it's the digitalization of which previously were just kind of artisanal processes. But all the AI companies a few years ago had the same business model. We're going to go in, we're going to optimize one part of the process, one part of the IVF cycle, and we're going to charge $1,000 per click to do it or $2,000 a click to do it. Absolutely unsustainable business. Great engineering, great concept. You are making the process work better. But the whole idea of building a business around that, when really what we're trying to do is drive costs down, it was very difficult to demonstrate the value proposition. But if you take those same capabilities and you say, okay, we're going to talk to attack the entire process. And this is just bringing you know, data collection, feed it into the computers, have the computers tell us those things that really make the process work better, make it work more efficiently, and really feed into dollars per baby, time to baby, and life disruption to baby. And let's re-engineer this, the system itself. Let's offer IVF places where it's not available to people that have no access to it, that really want it, that can afford it at a lower price point. And let's build that places where it doesn't exist. And we're going to start filling in a lot of the holes around the existing infrastructure, around the existing clinics, the clinic networks. After that, we've got the existing clinics looking and suddenly, wow, there's someone else doing this. And it turns out that some of our people, some of our market, may want to do that instead. Maybe it's closer to where they are. Maybe they just, they could do the same thing. You know, they get the same probability of an outcome, and they're willing to do the trade-offs of not having quite the same experience that we've been offering. And that way, 
that kind of parallel industry is going to flow into the existing industry. This is what I'm not smart enough to be able to predict it. But are you wondering, you know, but incrementally looking at people with no access at all. And we're, we're trying to one after another build systems that can deliver that access to them. It actually can do it in a way that we can measure and we can process, optimize, and iterate in a way that the current kind of artisanal system doesn't let us do. Then I think you're going to see in retrospect that these things have really revolutionary effects, but you just can't map it out. It's going to happen organically. And when you look at the proliferation of technology over the past hundred years, how did airplanes go from the Wright brothers to the first jet 40 years later to what we have now, which is essentially the democratization of air travel, including airlines that charge you to pick your seat and have no food on, on board and you have to uh, pay for every single bag you bring up. These are things that evolved because the technology was built and let it evolve into that. It turned out there was a market segment looking for it. You know, the first eyeglasses were invented in the, in the 1300s took about 300 years before everybody over 40 could see. And, you know, it's it's a very, very long time to put these innovations into a marketplace. IVF, I think you're going to see it a lot faster because there's an extremely fast proliferation of knowledge. Consumers know where to go for the information. And given the information, the, the way information travels over you know, the Internet and things of that sort, this is a very, very savvy group of patients just waiting for access to, uh, waiting for access. And again, go back to the desire to have a family is one of those incredible, you just can't, it's just, this is not consumer discretionary. This is not something you could deny people if it's out there. So it could be the case that the disruptive model coming from venture capital becomes not one that says we're going to create something that sells to all of these people or even sells this to the patients as a as as a direct to consumer base, but rather all of these booths that are ASRM are at ASRM trying to sell to the clinics to improve these inefficiencies. They themselves are now the model, and we create a model running alongside the 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 current model. So I, I, that's how I see the the fifteen year hard work, the thirty year, forty year hard work potentially being a an overnight success based on your insight. And I mean, to me, Griffin, a great analogy and one that's obviously used quite often now is electric cars. Like Ford and GM, Chrysler, everyone knew electric was coming, but decisions were made not to pursue it until they were forced to by a new entrant coming in, doing things differently, inspiring change, and having customers, or in our case, patients, demanding that new kind of experience proliferate in other areas. So I think we're seeing this in other places. It will be modeled here, as David said, hopefully faster. Um, and so we can get to more patients um, as fast as we can. But uh, I think that... Well, ahead. that's a good point. That's a, you just made me think of something, Abigail, which is that I suspect that, that part of the reason why Tesla was able to come in as the entrant there were is from all of the different vendors and companies trying to sell to GM and Ford and Honda and Toyota over the years that developed certain technologies. And that made it possible for a Tesla to come in faster, possibly to acquire some of those, to, to, to integrate some of those 
that weren't happening and, and build a whole new model, which could be the case of venture capital coming into. Exactly. Uh, and, and we're seeing, you know, new clinic models emerging where they're bringing in these technologies almost as if they're within the clinic's DNA itself. They're getting off the ground while thinking about re-engineering processes that still have yet to be optimized at kind of some of the larger the larger chains as well. And so they're starting off on that front foot of the innovation as they go, uh, which I think is going to be really exciting to see how they can grow and progress um, and continue to innovate since they're starting in that place already. Yeah, and the kind of unspoken, untalked about part of this as well is there's an entire industry of cell biology feeding into biopharmaceuticals, for example, and all sorts of types of you know, fluid engineering that is not operating in a vacuum. Like IVF is just one more area of cell biology. And uh, you know, a lot of these technologies are mature. They're in place elsewhere. And we just have to cart them over, put them in the lab, plug them in. And it can really radically, radically change the way a lot of the IVF cycles performed in ways that can benefit the providers themselves, ways that can provide new founders who want to build different delivery systems of IVF. All, all of them benefit the patients. They're more eng they're better engineered, so they're easier to scale. Since they're better engineered, they're easier to measure the benefit from them. These are things that are going to go into that bringing that IVF pregnancy rates higher and higher towards, you know, towards, you know, kind of a uh, emergence of a best practices and then give us a springboard to keep iterating, to keep re-engineering it, to keep finding the thing that's working the least so we can inch that pregnancy rate higher and higher. Then we bring in our actuarial and financial principles. We risk manage the whole thing, and we build an entire different IVF industry where you pay for baby instead of buying IVF cycles. And uh, that's you want you want to you want to get people's attention. You start totally risk managing the process, and uh, you will see the floodgates open. Well, that's your fourth. That that's your fourth principle that you talk about in your article and talk about burying the lead, David. I buried the lead as I read this again, and I think, oh, this this will get people's attention. So the, the fourth principle recaps what you just said: greater certainty, uniformly higher outcomes, and improved data collection and analysis leads to actual actuarial quality data, which leads to better risk management, which leads to paying and getting paid for outcomes, not cycles. You pay when the procedure works. You really believe that that's not only possible, but inevitable? Yep, absolutely. It's too important. It's to the people that are consuming. People are also very, yeah, you know, it's, it's, the optionality right now is just unacceptable for most people. The idea, yeah, you know, I had someone talk to me about five, six years ago. I said, well, what's an IVF cycle cost? It's like the cost of a small Toyota. What's the big deal? And I said, well, you go into a Toyota dealer with fifteen or $17,000. You drive out with a car. You walk into an IVF clinic with fifteen or $17,000, and you walk out with a possibility of having a baby or a 35 to 65% possibility of having nothing other than endured a lot of inconvenience, a lot of heartbreak, and set your financial stability back quite a ways. 
Now, that is a, a, a need in the marketplace that screams for someone to open up that market. So this is something you know, talk about with incumbents or without incumbents. This is something that really plays right into the underwriting insurance playbook if the traditional insurers want to assume that. So far, they have not. So we've seen the emergence of a secondary market, people doing IVF and fertility only underwriting insurance, which I'm thrilled about. We're seeing some of the practitioners start to re-explore using risk management and these kind of risk-sharing strategies. This goes back to the late 1990s, but it was done very poorly. And as the numbers get better and better, frankly, it's an easy thing to do. If no one else does it, you know, Griffin, you and Abigail and I will start our own insurance company. It's just taking actuarial data, crunching the numbers, using some very basic insurance principles, sticking a margin on top, making everybody else pay a little bit more so that nobody pays to get nothing. And it's really kind of... But I'm trying to think of where the precedent is for that, David. I I see the actuarial principle, but I think of if we have a tumor removed and we undergo chemo, if if, if the cancer comes back, we'd still pay for that procedure. If we pay a landscaper to install drainage and and level our backyard and the flooding returns, we still pay that landscaper. We might write a bad review, but this happens all of the time in other segments where people are paying to have a problem solved, but for whatever reason, it, it, it still happens. So what makes this possible in uh, IVF in a way that doesn't seem to have been possible yet in oncology? Well, I don't know if we want to trade anecdotes, but why, you know, I do why know not? that when I, <laughs> you know, when I practiced that I did surgery, it's like until the problem was solved, you, know, you paid your surgical fee and that was it. You know, follow up problems, things that you know, complications, the things that brought you back were all part of what you were paying for up front. Uh, yeah, it's it's. Yeah, and certainly there may be, you know, co-pays and things of that sort along the way. But really, you know, we're talking about risk managing in a way to make something affordable and acceptable and taking away the big optionality risk, whether there's some small, you know, it's like administrative fee that goes into paying for IVF. And certainly, let's say there's a late pregnancy loss in the third trimester, tragically. How does that get? you know, internalized into the system. These are sort of details. And what we're talking about is, you know, the, you set up a pricing system for, uh, you know, for, you know, based on your outcomes and you define the outcome however you want to. Uh, the same way you, you, you know, it's, it's, maybe it's like a warranty. Maybe as we've mapped out for the disease prevention, Part of IVF, which is an enormous, another enormous industry waiting to be developed. Maybe the pricing marketing structure is essentially a gym membership for the family. You freeze your eggs early, you go on birth control, all of your pregnancies occur using IVF and PGTM, and you have a zero risk of having a baby that dies of sickle cell disease, as 9% of babies born with it do in childhood. but you pay a certain amount for unlimited access 
to the service. And since we know what the service costs to produce and we know the likelihood of having failure, we build our business over selling a lifetime of access to disease prevention for your family. Pricing is really just marketing. It's just taking the cost of production, looking at the enormous size of the marketplace, bringing some creativity and a little bit of fearlessness into addressing a new market, rather than trying to just make a little bit of a change in what's being offered now. And the IVF ecosystem, the IVF environment, is one that most people are not served, but really want to do. We're really trying to build an industry that doesn't exist. And a big part of that is that risk management. Big part of it is offering the possibility of having a child, having a family, to people that don't have access to it, and making it affordable. And we're not going to make it affordable by just doing what we're doing now and putting a lower price tag on it, although that's one, one way of doing it as well. The way we address another 10, 15, or 20 million people worldwide, or a million to two million more people here in the U.S., is by tackling price and the patient's own risk up front. And we attack that with engineering, we attack it with certainty, and we attack it with numbers. And it's a uh, it's very antithetical the way IBM is produced now. And yeah, this is a big idea, but if you talk to all the people that don't have access to having families, you know, they're very open to big ideas. And there's not a room in this industry, both for the people that are doing such a good job now, as well as people are going to come and address those people in our search. We spend so much time talking about the four principles behind democratizing IVF that we didn't even really get a chance to go into the map. It could be its own topic. And I would love to have both of you back on the show to talk about how you mapped engineering solutions to IVF success because there is so much in the lab, in the clinic, and uh, you, you really give uh, some of the the main problems with labor, with embryology, with medication, with lab space and complexity that I think it merits its own topic. So I'm inviting you back in front of everyone. David, your, your invitation is constantly standing, but Abigail, I'm explicitly inviting you back with Dr. Sable to go over just the map in a sequel part two to this episode, if you would oblige us in the new year. I'd love to. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. I'd like to give both of you the floor to conclude and uh, in in a way that uh, either summarizes what you talked about today or what you want people to pay attention to either within relation to the article or other things that they should be studying up on? So to summarize, Griffin, my perspective is is simple. We continue to talk about the small slice of the pie and how to cram as much innovation and new thinking and bring integration into that sliver. But I think that there's such a broad opportunity beyond that and that innovation will come from all areas. And we're going to see different kinds of businesses entering the market, challenging incumbents, learning from incumbents. And hopefully our goal is that over time, what it will do is increase access to anyone who needs IVF, that they can have it. 
and have the best outcomes of anywhere in the world. Um, so that's how I would conclude. Yeah, I just reiterate uh, what Abigail just said. And, uh, yeah, this is a, if there is a entrepreneurial, a healthcare entrepreneurial playground that's more interesting than this one, I haven't found it. You know, you've got an enormous, enormous life-moving need with a huge population of people. You've got a confluence of terrific engineering, information technology, and great science. That is, this, this is, yeah, it's, having been, you know, I look back at the last 30 years when we've done an idea, it's breathtaking. It's absolutely it's spectacular. What we can do to scale that is, you know, it's, it is just such an opportunity to take fearlessness, creativity, and, you know, just a lot of, Hard, you know, hard nosed brain power. And it's looking, looking for comparisons. Don't look at healthcare. Don't look at the IVF industry. Look at what we've done. You know, my first computer, I love putting a picture of it in one of my, one of my talks. My 1988 Commodore PC 30, which was a fabulous $2,500 computer with, you know, 10 megabytes of RAM. No, one, you know, half a megabyte of RAM, 10 megabyte hard drive, and a a 286 chip. And that was a great computer. It wasn't connected to anything else. And to think what that computer does, what you can do with $2,500 of the computing world now, that's where we are at IVF now where that computer is, which was about 40 years in. Look at the IT industry. Look at the transportation industry. Look at communications. That's the kind of growth we're going to see in helping people get pregnant and have families, which arguably is just as important. And the need, the, the desire to suck that entrepreneurial effort up into an enormous industry is there. And that's the opportunity. And uh, that's the kind of growth that uh, you're going to be looking for in the next 10, 15, 25, 30 years. And I'll leave it at that. And Griffin, I will say this again. You are the only person that provides this kind of forum to talk about this stuff. So I always like, whenever I'm on your show, I always want to back it up by you know reinforcing what you're doing because this is not a insignificant part of it. So uh you know if I could stick myself in there and just a plug for what you're doing, which is really uh, really necessary and really important. I'm grateful for the plug. I hope to be able to provide a lot more coverage in 2023 as Inside Reproductive Health expands its scope. And there's certainly no shortage of material to cover based on what we talked about today, based on what else is happening in the field. And I look forward to having both of you back on the show to explore this more. Thank you both very much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.